Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. My name's John Lyons. I'm a filmmaker, teaching artist, and the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania. My name's Megan Shoffrey. I'm a filmmaker and production coordinator at R. Frank Photography. This week, our Film Grain Dinner and a Movie series features the eerie premiere of The Biggest Little Farm, sponsored by Whole Foods Cooperative. Woo! Our guest is Craig Stadler, CTO of Erie Data Systems and creator of PDVid. And our roundtable discussion will focus on how do filmmakers and film exhibitors get coverage for their events. Our Film Grain Dinner Movie is our Wednesday night film series. Film Grain is open to the public and takes place at the Bourbon Barrel, 1213 State Street in Erie, PA. We have a big 16-foot screen, a great buffet with vegetarian options available and gluten-free on request, and couch and table service all night long. This Wednesday, June 24th, we're showing The Biggest Little Farm, a new documentary which follows a couple with no prior farming experience through their successes and failures as they work to develop a sustainable farm on 200 acres outside of Los Angeles. Over the years, the desolate land they purchased begins to transform and thrive. This is a special night for us because it's a film that's never been shown in Erie, but it's playing in the big city theaters right now and doing quite well. For a really small, intimate, low-budget indie, um, it's made $4 million between like New York and L.A. and a couple select places in between. So through Neon, which is uh, one of these really cool boutique distributors like A24. Um, we have a, a good relationship with them and they're letting us show this movie early in the release cycle. So I would give this film a nine out of 10. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't hand out nines like they're candy. Right. Or in this case, <laughs> carrots. <laughs> um, so this is a moving, informative, and inspiring story, and one of our rare film grain offerings that's actually family-friendly. Viewers should walk away with a renewed appreciation for real farming. It's extremely difficult but rewarding work, and something that those of us living in modern society really take for granted these days. The cinematography is beautiful. Um, the time given to each living organism on this farm is a welcome choice. We truly feel like they are family members and we are family members as well. Um, and the human family in the story isn't afraid to show their struggles and failures. So find out why Biggest Little Farm has been one of the surprise theatrical hits of the year. Reserve your seats through Film Society NWPA.org. Just click events or you can purchase at the door. Doors open Wednesday at 5.30 p.m., again at the Bourbon Barrel on State Street. Buffet dinner will be announced Monday on the Facebook event. We're joined today via the telephone by Craig Stadler, CTO of Erie Data Systems and the creator of PDVid. How are you doing, Craig? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good. Very good. We're doing great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So, Craig, you do so many different things and you have such an interesting background. We're really excited to have you on here. So, did you start life in Erie or did you make your way to Erie through some sequence of events? Well, yeah, it's actually a little bit of both. I was born here um, and then left when I was about 15. And, uh, Spent some time in Texas and then went to uh, college in Georgia and then 
right around the time of the first dot-com boom in, I'm guessing, about 97 or 98, and moved out to California and spent, I'm guessing, a better part of maybe 15 years in Silicon Valley, working for a lot of startups and started my own software company and a lot of sorted details there, all fun, all great, um, and then moved back uh, here to Erie. Uh, I'm guessing now it's been a while. I think it's probably been about seven or eight years. What brought uh, you back, back to Erie? Were you were you tired of the uh, the startup world, or um, did that you just naturally gravitate back to Erie after you learned all these amazing skills? Well, it, it was a mix of a couple of different things. I still had family here. Uh, my father had uh, passed away quite a while ago, but my mom and then siblings were still here and I, I always came back here ever since I left when I was 16 or so 15 16 uh, every year every couple of years for the summer and the winter or one or both you know kind of thing because I always enjoyed coming back here uh, for vacations and then um, as things started to get more expensive not that they were ever cheap in California but uh, they started you know to really really escalate and I was with my fiance at the time Nicole um, and we were vacationing here in Erie and it was just really nice and we were hanging out at the beach and Presque Isle and that kind of thing and we we're like you know what this is really nice here I'm doing telecommute work I get paid paid the exact same thing no matter where I am the money would go a lot farther here we could explore different things we're near you know major cities in Canada and all that kind of stuff and we're like hey why not that seems like something to do um, and neither one of us were really making use of um you know, California, so to speak, the outdoors, we weren't huge uh, outdoors people or hiking or using the ocean for surfing or any of that kind of thing. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the details just pointed back to Erie being like, let's give this a shot kind of thing. So so before we get into what you wanted to explore here in Erie, um, what did you go to school for? What was your major? Um, I went to, yeah, I went to school for computer science. And oddly enough, I'm I, probably about eight months before I was supposed to graduate, I just dropped out. I was just tired of doing it. And I had so many opportunities. I was working either two or three jobs at that point doing contracting and all kinds of stuff. And I really was not enjoying the curriculum that I was doing for, you know, for that kind of thing. Uh, I had already been programming since I was about 10 years old or so. Um, I did enjoy uh, teaching continuing education for adults, uh, how to use the Internet and that kind of thing back in like 1990, uh-huh. 91 or so, <laughs> before the web even existed, believe it or not. Wow. Um, yeah, so I got to see all that kind of stuff. But I enjoyed a lot of aspects about being in college, but the curriculum was, I don't know, I don't want to say boring, but just didn't work for me. I think I think I needed to, to embrace like a lot of uh, work situations and learning on the job, so to speak, rather than a lot of book learning, and that was just my thing. And so I just decided to, you know, pursue a lot of job offers I had at the time. So, Well, I think you were a bit ahead of your time. Um, I work, you know, at Edinburgh University for the day job. Um, at the Technology Help Center, and more and more of my students, my standout students that work for us at the Help Center, um, are leaving before getting their degree to work, um, usually out west or Austin or something like that. So it sounds like you're just yeah. maybe a little, little ahead of your time. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is like you know it was it was a total doable situation because I think when I left, I think I only had two thousand dollars in debt. It was obviously a lot cheaper to go to school, I go to college rather. You know, back in like ninety, I guess ninety five or so. So different situation, but yeah, I totally agree with you. What kind of startups did you work for? What were you attracted to back then, or were you just looking for work and experience? Well, I mean, th- at that 
point in time, um, I moved out to California initially. I took a full-time job with uh, a competitor to ADP. It was a payroll company, and they basically wanted me to work in their IT department designing software internally to basically help everybody do their job better kind of thing. So if somebody in some department needed a you know, a, a gadget, whatever, kind of to do this or to do that or networking stuff, all that kind of stuff, I was the go-to guy basically to design whatever internally needed to be done. And so it was you know, really enjoyable. I liked it, but I always had this kind of passion on the side to do my own thing uh, additionally. So I started up my own software company back then. I'm guessing this is probably like 97, 98 um, with uh, Windows and later Mac software. Um, and I designed one of the first um, internet television uh, software products. It was actually called CTube, believe it or not, uh, back in like 99. For which, like streaming? You know, it was, yeah. It used uh, Real Audio and Windows Media and a couple of other uh, streaming platforms, basically, and offered what you would consider now to be like a modern, like Netflix type interface. But this was, you know, a long time ago, where basically the user could pull up the software and watch TV channels, essentially that kind of thing. Um, and then, as as everybody knows, back in you know 2006 or so, I'm not sure if they got the name from my software product or it was just something that was floating out there. But obviously, YouTube came out and the rest is history kind of thing, but that was a very different uh, type of product. Mine was for streaming television, and then I had a streaming uh, a radio program, and then I also made a piece of software that allowed um, uh, partially sighted people to add text-to-speech to Instant Messenger, so that if they were using uh, AIM or MSN or that kind of thing, all their messages that would come in would actually talk to them. So I was really busy just designing a lot of different um, software products on the side in my on my own company. Uh, my own time kind of thing. So I was always busy doing that. But back to your original question, um, from my full-time job, I noticed the contractors were coming in and they were making really good money and they were always moving from one thing to the next. And that really piqued my curiosity because it's not that I didn't want to stay in one place for very long, but I definitely wanted to work around a lot of different types of people and situations. So I decided to go with contracting. So I left that full-time job. I was only there probably six or seven months um, and immediately went to contracting. And I was not really interested in a particular type of industry. I pretty much was like, I'll go and do anything that will fit, you know, my coding abilities, my IT abilities, my database background, all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up working on a lot of different types of jobs. Some of them were, you know, really, um, I guess you would say, uh, fly by night, kind of really frivolous with their money, kind of that kind of thing. So I got to see a lot of craziness uh, about, you know, situations with them just burning through money and that kind of thing. And then, I, you know, I worked uh, for some other well-known startup, they weren't a startup at that time, Cisco and uh, PayPal and also the California Power Company. I can't remember what the name of it was, but yeah, those types of things basically where they would bring me in to do database work, do programming gigs, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that one in particular that I was talking about that was really crazy was actually a chat service. So what they would do is, you know, they're gearing up when I came in for Madonna to do a, a group chat. And, you know, we take this stuff for granted nowadays, but back then it was a big to-do where Madonna would be in a chat room and they would facilitate, you know, the whole world being able to come in and text chat with Madonna kind of thing. Uh-huh. Kind of like uh, a, that, Reddit, that kind of thing. a Reddit thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, it's, it's very easy for people to do that kind of stuff, you know, on a lot of different platforms nowadays, mm. but they were, um, I think they were called Talk City. Okay. Uh, and they faci- facilitated basically, uh, you know, chat with really, really large celebrities and stuff like that, but... So without, uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but obviously um, IT and technology um, is really kind of uh, hitting its stride here in Erie um, with the downtown, um, you know, 
technology districts and whatnot. What did you learn um, working for these big companies without getting into anything specific, but um, maybe some tips that you could give people as far as mistakes that you saw um, with early success or, you know, I don't, I don't want you to uh, get yourself in trouble, but I'm curious with your experience, um, you know, if there if there's anything you want to share more generally as far as um, some mistakes or some tips. Well, I- yeah, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, there's an obvious one, which has to do with, you know, just because you get funding, don't necessarily, you know, burn through it or blow it on silly things kind of thing. I did see a lot of situations where uh, founders would get uh, funding, VC funding, angel funding, and that kind of thing. And they automatically gave themselves, you know, a huge salary and that kind of thing. Um, and that tended to not work out a lot of times. Um, usually the situations that I did see it work out with, they would actually defer, you know, paying themselves and put money you know, either into human capital or equipment or that kind of thing to really get the, the company off the ground and get it, uh, you know, into the black, so to speak, before they even paid themselves. So that was one thing that I saw a lot. Um, another one would be uh, management uh, issues, just people not quite quite having a really good plan of action and not working hard enough or fast enough kind of thing. It's a sense of urgency type of thing. Um, having a sense of urgency or even creating one yourself, uh, I think can be a good thing. Um, uh, and then I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I'm sure there's other stuff if I put my, my mind to it. But the thing that comes to mind too as well that I saw a lot, and this is a really big one, this is probably at the top, is when I saw all these startups and stuff uh, back in 97, 98 kind of thing, which was, I think, I want to say right around the time that Google even started, uh, which I was not a part of that, but the thing I saw a lot was there was this huge frenzy over just the term startup kind of thing, which I see a lot of that in Erie. And I'm definitely not trying to take away from anybody's uh, you know, endeavors or that kind of thing. But it's a long road, and it's very difficult. And just because you have a business of any type doesn't mean you're going to su- succeed, doesn't mean you have a market, it doesn't mean you know, it, a competitor can't come in and just you know, blow you away kind of thing. Um, so that's the one thing I saw a lot is there was just a lot of hype around the whole idea of a startup and that's kind of why the bubble burst uh, back then in late 90s early 2000s i'm guessing because all these vcs and angel funding people came in and the you know tech startup was the thing and they invested all this money and they didn't have good business plans and they didn't have good uh you know staffing people you know on board and it all blew up kind of thing the thing i would say about uh erie in particular it seems to me that we're kind of just at the beginning of that um, from what I am observing, and you know, it's definitely good that it's happening. Um, but I think really paying attention to whoever it is that's involved with supporting these groups, uh, making sure that they get the help that they need, whether it's internally or externally, and really putting a sense of urgency to uh, you know to their 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 work, their success, that kind of thing. Because when you think about it, I'm talking about '97, '98. Here we are, well, 2019. Erie's got, you know, ways to go kind of thing. And we've got some major cities around us that are way ahead of us too as well. So if we're going to try to attract uh, investors and try to, uh, you know, attract outside companies to come in, we got to really put a, a serious sense of urgency to uh, accelerating these, the growth of these, of these companies, in my opinion. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. And thanks, thanks for sharing that. And uh, yeah, hopefully lessons, lessons learned from mistakes in the past and a good cautionary tale for, for Erie going forward, right? So how about yourself then with starting um, your own businesses and coming back to Erie 
uh, I guess take us through, you know, what was what were kind of the first things that you and you and Nicole wanted to accomplish coming to Erie and opportunities that you saw when you guys decided to to come back and become Erieites? Sure. Well, yeah, my, my initial thought was just come back and kind of unwind a little bit from the pace of California, but still obviously do contracting work and then start up something else new. Essentially, that's usually my, my thing. So I'll start with a project, have a bunch of goals in mind, you know, achieve them and then either move on to something else or let something else come to me, that kind of thing. But we were pretty much like wanted to move here, get established, um, ideally buy a home at some point, which ended up happening um, with the movie house and everything. But um, with the, what do you mean when you say with the movie Sorry, house? Let's let's back up. We don't yeah. want to we don't want to <laughs> skip over what you just said. Oh well, I mean, I guess the thing is the uh, the initial intent was just to come here, get established, get a place to live, um, ideally buy a house at some point, and pursue our careers. Uh, Nicole being a funeral director, and she can speak to that effect. But as that you know unfolded kind of thing, um, I came up with the idea of possibly starting a, a tech company here in Erie, kind of thing that was dealing with data brokering, which has to do with collecting data on the internet. Uh, refining it, giving it meaning or organization, and then reselling that data to another service kind of thing. And that's where Erie Data Systems kind of came about. Now, the whole thing with Erie Movie House was actually a really weird mix of um, hobby kind of pie-in-the-sky thing, but was never really the intention to be like a full-time business for Nicole and I. It was something we wanted to do for the community, do for ourselves, um, make a little bit of extra money, have it pay for the, the building, you know, ideally. But really more so have that be a hobby kind of thing for us. Um, and so that's how that came about. We were just driving by the West Erie Plaza back when the Dipson was still there um, a few years ago before, um, is it VCG? I can't remember the name of the property holder that bought it. But uh, yeah, so basically we looked into that. It was uh, cost prohibitive to, to do that. And so we said, well, you know, we'd still like to do this at a smaller scale uh, kind of thing, open up a movie theater with cool nostalgic stuff. And then Nicole's really into movies. and. The uh, building that we were in, the floor below us, the people were moving out, and they had just put in a lot of renovations, and we realized that it had perfect, like, 11-foot ceilings, which would fit a huge screen in it, because obviously, uh, having a really big screen, it's very difficult to find a building that'll that'll do that in Erie, because um, a lot of buildings are just standard-size ceilings, and you can't really fit a screen that big in there. And so we decided to give that a shot. We rented it out. Um, did really well and then we ended up buying the building from the uh, landlord about two years later and so we've been doing that ever since uh, that's, that's and of awesome. course there's other things that i've been pursuing but does that help yeah yeah <laughs> for sure and just so our listeners know we're going to have uh nicole on the program as well here in the coming weeks to really get into the eerie movie house but thanks for providing that little tease um, so you started off with Erie Data Systems. For those of us right. who aren't in IT, you said basically you, you take data and repackage it for third parties. Can you give us an example of kind of a common task that Erie Data Systems does for someone? Sure. Well, the, the first model that I started out with essentially is I was looking for information that could be valuable to you know, a, a, spe a specific industry. And I was having some conversations with some different people because I have a really good background in what's called spidering, which is writing software that goes out on the internet to find specific types of information and, and bring them back and, you know, clean them up kind of, so to speak. And a friend of mine was saying, hey, there's a lot of images out there on the internet that have uh, what's called metadata inside of them, which tells 
what kind of camera took the picture, if any, uh, what the serial number is, all kinds of really cool uh, specific information embedded in the image that travels with the image no matter where it goes kind of thing. Uh, it's not in all images, it's only in select images. And he was saying, wouldn't it be really cool if you could design a search engine, uh, maybe for law enforcement, whatever kind of thing, uh, so that you could do a search on images, but more importantly, you could say, okay, I need to know all the images that were taken between this day and this day at this specific location within a one mile radius uh, taken by an iPhone 4, that kind of thing. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's a huge undertaking. I mean, no wonder nobody's done it yet. It's just, you know, can you imagine how many images on the internet there are and how many you'd have to download and how many of those would even have that kind of information? And so after about a week, um, I was like, you know, this is a really good challenge. Nobody's done this. There's a reason for it. I'm going to try to go ahead and do it. So I spent, um, I want to say the better part of two years, like refining that. Yeah. And just one man show out there rogue, just trying to figure it out, um, ended up doing it and ended up, um, having a database. I want to say at that point of about hundred million images, um, all over the, all over the world, essentially with this kind of metadata in it. And I started pursuing, uh, law enforcement companies and digital forensics companies trying to find, uh, testers essentially. And so I put it out there kind of for these people to apply for. And I think I had about 15 different, um, focus group testers essentially from a lot of different backgrounds trying to use it kind of thing and giving me their feedback about, you know, whether it's good or I should, you know, start selling it or that kind of thing. And the feedback I got was mostly positive, but I really wasn't getting the kind of, uh, use cases that I wanted. Some were for like pictures, uh, that had been uh, used without copyright permission, that kind of stuff. They were all good, but I was looking for like something really big Mm -hmm. to justify it. And so what I decided to do was, uh, think about who would have the best use for this and child exploitation prevention came to mind and i'm thinking you know the national center for missing and exploited children they could use this to try to work on cases kind of thing so if they have a photo that they know that a you know it has a given serial number they could run that serial number through my system and they could find pictures all over the internet you know in different places to try to track down uh you know where this person has been kind of thing what systems they're on all that kind of stuff there's a lot of different uses but um, so I gave it to them for free, essentially. I donated that, and they had about 30 caseworkers using it for, I want to say, about a month. And then I met with them uh, to do an official training session and get their feedback. And it turns out that they were actually already using it to submit police reports, which was wow. really awesome. I mean, I had no idea whether it even worked at all for them. Uh, so that went exceptionally well. Um, and so what it, I decided to do at that point was to kind of take it to Twitter and be like, hey, you know what, I, I want to get uh, some real heavy-hitting digital forensics uh, companies in here that deal with the FBI, the CIA, Interpol, uh, RCMP, like pretty much everything. And so I went to Twitter and started saying, hey, I'm looking for people to, uh, you know, to test this, to par- possibly partner with me. And it wasn't shortly after uh, I got a call from a really, really large, pretty much the second largest uh, digital forensics company in the world. Um, in Canada, and they immediately said, you know, we either want to use your services or we want to just buy this and acquire you and you come work for us and you get your own team and, you know, you'll be in charge of uh, pretty much child exploitation prevention and uh, counterterrorism initiatives, essentially, and uh, work directly with, um, you know, police and federal officials and testers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so after about a month of talking that over and figuring out just the right kind of situation where I could stay in Erie, I didn't have to move to Canada, 
that kind of thing, um, because I didn't really want to leave and was established here. Everything worked out really well, and I've been with them for about a year. And so that's what I do full-time, um, is work with them and, and law enforcement to develop, to develop tools for uh, child exploitation prevention primarily, and then secondarily um, anything related to uh, counterterrorism and those types of things. So That is amazing. I, I, I don't know if you're able to share any statistics with us um, as far as successful tracking using your software. Are you able to share any, any of that? Or? Actually, you know what? The thing is, is they're not allowed to share it with me. Okay. That's yeah. The thing. There's there's this level of removal that we provide, you know, the services and the software to them, but they're not allowed to talk about cases like in specific. They can basically say that it's effective or not effective, or in some cases they can talk about cases that they've, you know, worked on and that it helped them with, but they can't really talk about anything uh, specifically. Understood. Which is maybe good for me. Good for <laughs> yeah. me because I don't necessarily want to, <laughs> sure. you know, hear the details of you know kid related things like that. Do you continue to yeah. re- refine um, your refine your work there? I assume all of the time is it getting better and better and more Absolutely, standard? yeah. And it's it's branched into other uh, other types of data, other types of the internet, that kind of thing, into the dark web, and trying to uh, do some artificial intelligence related uh, matching and things like that based on like language patterns. And there's a lot of crazy, really cool spy kind of high tech stuff that's really really fun for me and of course it's it's amazing to know that like sure i get to tinker i get to do this really cool stuff but it's going towards such an amazing cause and you know helping save kids essentially it's it's overwhelming it's pretty cool yeah that's amazing so is that is this product how you moved into creating pdvid as well or was pdvid Uh, created before that (laughs) that's a good question um, you know, it seems no matter what I'm involved in, my brain always goes other places you know, at the same time. I like to keep myself very occupied uh, in creating things. Um, I, I, I tend to always have like a main full-time you know, position, but on the side, um, I tend to tinker and, and still like to create things. So, yeah, so essentially what happened was um, at the time of the acquisition, uh, which is about a year ago, I had created a search engine for... Uh, the hearing impaired, essentially. And what that was is it was a video search engine so that people that were hearing impaired could do a video search to find videos across, you know, all the major platforms that specifically had closed captions. And there wasn't anything out there. And so I started talking to, uh, you know, deaf groups and focus groups and things like that to try to find out what they used. And they were all really disappointed in the fact that they couldn't do a closed caption search on Facebook for their videos and that, the, the you know, the one on YouTube didn't really work that well. And so I decided to create a video search engine um, at that time uh, for the deaf and hard of hearing. Uh, it, was, it was used a, a bit, but it didn't really take off like I had thought it would, but still I learned a lot in the process. So my next point of uh, you know, moving on or creating something new is I thought to myself, you know, I made this video search engine for the closed caption stuff for uh, the deaf and hard of hearing and, and, and that kind of stuff, but what about regular video search? And I, so I took a step back and I started talking to people and when I went to you know go Google video search pretty much all I got back was YouTube and I'm like well this totally makes sense because they own YouTube and YouTube is incredibly dominant and I'm thinking wait a minute what about all those video search platforms in the past 10 years that you know that I've known about like Daily Motion and uh, Metacafe and Vimeo and there's still a lot out there but you just don't really see them unless you go directly to that site and that led me to the idea what if I created a video video search platform, video search engine, essentially, that catered to everybody except for YouTube to give the people the ability to find things that they normally wouldn't see? Because 
everybody that I talked to said, I don't use Google video search or any video search. I just go straight to YouTube because that's all I get, hmm. which is all well and good. But what, uh, what about all the platforms that you might want to see otherwise? And so I started to do research on that, and I found out that all those you know platforms that I just mentioned, among a lot more, were still active and actually really popular. Daily Motion is huge in Europe. And then I found out that there's YouTube competitors in Indonesia, in Iran, uh, in Japan, in China. And so the more I started going through researching the process of who was still left out there, the more I found things that I had never even heard of and didn't even know about, which only furthered my process of like my need to create this thing uh, kind of thing. And so my initial goal was I started this back in October of last year, September, October, was to have a video search engine that had about 10 million videos because I figured, you know what, 10 million is a good place to start with. That's a lot. Um, and I wanted at least, you know, a dozen or so platforms um, take us to today. Um, I think we just reached 207 million videos at this point and well over 100 platforms, which means, you know, the diversity is even greater at this point. Um, so that was my goal, essentially, is to give people the ability to find things outside of what, they're, what they already know kind of thing, the, the YouTube platform. And the other thing I added into as well, because privacy is such a big issue at this point and people being tracked and that kind of stuff, I decided to make it so that the PDVid search engine would respect people's privacy and doesn't save anyone's um, IP addresses and searches and that kind of that kind of thing, um, similar to DuckDuckGo, which is another privacy offering. So tried to throw that in there too as well um, to allow people to search for things they might not find otherwise and you know give them the peace of mind knowing that things, their searches aren't being saved and sold. So essentially like you can go to PDVid, type in a topic that you're interested in, and then it brings up all different types of platforms, videos on different platforms? It does, yeah, at over 100 different ones. Yeah, and that, that includes Instagram and Facebook and oh, wow. Twitter and TikTok. And uh, yeah, the TikTok one's pretty silly, but that's in there too. <laughs> um, you know, the Meta Cafe, Vimeo, Daily Motion, pretty much anything that you can think of. Um, it is fully multilingual too as well. Uh, because I decided I wanted one search platform that basically you could go and type something in in French or Farsi or English or German or anything and get your results back, and it totally works. I've had it tested with, um, I want to say, at least a half dozen or more, uh, you know, non-English languages kind of thing. So that's kind of a cool thing about it, too, is depending on whatever language you're using, those are the results that you'll get back in that language, which is a little bit unique, I think, for for a single search engine to do. How do you spell Petey? P-E-T-E-Y. Okay, because I know people, like the filmmakers that are listening to this now, uh, because while we were talking, I went on there and searched myself. So if we're not seeing a lot of results, does that just mean that we're not, that we're only using, you know, the mainstream platforms to host our stuff and maybe we can learn some lessons there about um, uploading to other sources too? I'm just trying to think of, you know, as far as filmmakers wanting to have their content be more accessible, what tips would you give um, if we're not necessarily getting a lot of hits through PDVid? What does that tell us about our content? Well, well, there's one thing going on in that, uh, you know, either it hasn't been spidered yet or it has, or it's not simply not there kind of thing. Uh, people do leverage YouTube so heavily that if a filmmaker is only uploading your their videos to YouTube, the likelihood that they're going to find it in PDVid is very low because I think the uh, the only way that YouTube videos get into PDVid is they have to be at least 45 minutes, I think, which is, you know, a 
documentary, a feature film, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, other than that, they may want to just stri- stick strictly to YouTube. But, you know, PDVit can also be used for different topics. So that if you go in and you search and you're like, hey, I didn't know about this platform, Minds, for example. Minds is a new, uh, well, not not completely new, but a relatively new competitor to uh, Facebook that's a crypto social network um, that's decentralized, I believe. And they have their own video platform. And largely speaking, um, they're catering to a really wide, large audience, whereas you know, YouTube is very specific. They have a policy of demonetizing certain content and you know, banning certain channels and this kind of thing. So a lot of people have gone over to this uh, Minds platform, M-I-N-D-S. Um, and another one is called BitChute, for example. So the PDVid thing, um, if you don't end up finding you know, your content there when you do searches for other types of topics, you can end up discovering new platforms that you might want to include your content on, which could be beneficial. Yeah, that's good. Do you have a listing of um, all the places that you're spidering somewhere, or do you keep that kind of private? The thing is, it continues to grow, um, so I'm not sure about including it or not. Um, like I said, right now, it's I want to say it's about 110 different platforms or so. It's over 100. Um, and like I said, I just added a new one uh, yesterday um, kind of thing. So... So you have to I be may, up. I may publish it. I may not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> have to be really up on um, a lot of these different search engines and um, video hosting platforms. I mean, are you seeing? Um, I guess what tips generally can you give as far as you know people looking to get more eyeballs on their content? Metadata is obviously really important, um, but you know, I'm 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 just curious because with a a platform like yours, I'm sure. Um, People are going to find a lot of use with that. So for creators, yeah, just I mean, I would tend to think because you know because the the, the Google YouTube Play is so uh, specific in the way that they, uh, you know, I, by no means am I being like derogatory, but they have a very specific type of model and they have a spe- specific type of relevancy and all that kind of stuff. And I know it's been tough for a lot of people to get found and that kind of stuff. So I mean, what I would tend to think because. Uh, that situation is the way that it is, and people don't necessarily want to spend a ton of money on advertising either. It seems like the only uh, option left at that point would be through traditional social media uh, publications, which would be like, you know, on Twitter, on your Facebook, and that kind of thing. It's a tough game. I mean, it's a tough game even for me, um, getting the, you know, the message about a PDVid out there kind of thing. I'm up against something even worse because a lot of people, you know, are really, I don't want to say bought and sold, but kind of on the YouTube con. Uh, concept so why would they care about another video search engine unless there's something tied in that they're uh you know upset with them due to demonetization privacy all kinds of stuff like that and that's really what my play is kind of thing uh when someone says to me why should i use yours i got youtube i'd be like you probably shouldn't because if you're happy with that then i'm cool with that so but back to what you're saying yeah i think it's incredibly difficult for people to get their video content out there because the limit the options are so incredibly limited and that's one of the things that i'm really hopeful for uh with pdvid is that i can get some traction to kind of leverage that back out and when that does happen i do want to offer uh kind of a sponsored video posting for you know almost no cost kind of thing um if someone wants to do that it's not in the model right now but eventually that's a possibility but i agree with you it's a tough it's a tough game out there do you uh, have plans in the future to have like a mobile app or Apple TV or Roku app or something like that, uh, or do those already exist? Possibly, 
Uh, no, it doesn't yet. But see, part of my idea on this is that I think with uh, with the idea of you know mobile devices, essentially that kind of thing, whether it's a phone or uh, you know laptop pad, whatever you want to call it, um, kind of thing. I think the idea at this point in time is not really so much about search; it's more so about push pushing content. And so the app idea I have for PDVid is essentially that you know I think I'm probably going to do this uh, next year, at the later part of this year is develop a, a, an app that you can download so that you can put in a wish list of all the things that you're interested in topic-wise. So you could say you're interested in Brexit or Trump or, you know, a new movie that's coming out or you know, pretty much anything, how to cook a hamburger, how to, anything, essentially. Uh, put these in your wish list in the app and have it so on an hourly basis it'll ping back to the master server to see if anything's been found in that last hour that pertains to what it is that you like and it pushes that to your phone rather than having to make you actually go to the website and search for something, I see the evolution of this product being more so sending the content customized directly to you so you, have to, so you can do like less work essentially and worry about your daily life and send you the stuff that you want. Kind of like a, a Google alert kind of thing, but more so on an app. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think that sounds awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the other thing I was, was going to add too as well um, – is I have added something that I think a lot of search platforms don't do, especially video, is PDVid has a hashtag and mention section so that basically it correlates all the hashtags and mentions for the last 24 hours across all the platforms, being, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, some YouTube, like I said, limited, um, pretty much everything, anything that has a hashtag or a mention in it, and it gives you the top trending uh, video hashtags. So you could literally go on to the go on to PDVid, go into the hashtag section any given hour, any given day, and see what the current top uh, trending uh, video hashtags are, which is kind of a new concept, I think. I mean, everybody knows what hashtags are, but I don't think it's really been applied so much to video. So that's another thing that could be interesting, too. If somebody's doing research to go and either look at the current, uh, you know, last hour, 24 hours, but you can also do historical. You could literally say, show me the, the top video hashtags for January of 2016. And you can actually pull those up historically too, as well. So oh, that's really tried cool. to add some, yeah, some really cool stuff in there uh, that, that's you know a little bit outside of what you would normally get. So, John, what are the current trending <laughs> hashtags? He's like looking at them right now. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at them right now. Um, they are international too, so you might see stuff there that you're like, "What in the world is that?" <laughs> but they are yeah international. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm learning a lot just by looking at them. I mean, I see like SDCC, so um, Comic Con was just this weekend, so that makes sense. Okay. But like you're getting I, I, like I literally, yeah, I literally go on there sometimes instead of going to the news just to see what the top <laughs> hashtags are and click on them and find out what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's uh, that's a great idea. Well, let's um, switch gears a little bit, Craig, and talk about promotion in Erie, because obviously you and Nicole run the Erie Movie House for, for how many years now? It will be five years in November. Awesome, and congratulations yeah. with that. Thanks. So promoting oneself in Erie is difficult, right? Erie Times has lost a lot of local reporters, a lot of local staff, and Craig and I were chatting I think we can disclose this, Craig. We were kind of um, sure. sharing our frustrations of who do we even contact 
at the Erie Times anymore that does the showcase section. So um, just for our listeners, the Erie Times News on Thursdays, they put out the showcase section of the newspaper, which is really, um, if you're a musician, a filmmaker, an artist, any kind of an event planner, that's pretty much your one opportunity, um, unless you're one of the huge events, you know, like Celebrate Erie or Roar on the Shore or something like that, where, where you can get any notice at all. Right, Craig? I agree. Yeah. A- and, um, you know, they lost uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Poison um, was the person that we would always contact um, for the last several years, but now she has moved on. And I was saying to Craig, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know who, who <laughs> runs it anymore, if it's all farmed out now. So the challenge is we have the Erie Reader, which is um, fantastic in their local coverage. Um, but what other outlets do we have um, as exhibitors to let people know about um, the offerings that are available to them at the Erie Movie House every weekend. Like, give give us, like, I guess a, a general idea of, um, I mean, we'll get into the specifics of programming with Nicole, but uh, when are you guys open at the Movie House? And, you know, what kind of themes and, and genres do you show over at the Movie House? Yeah, I mean, actually, the, some people know this, some people don't, but what ended up happening over time was initially we wanted to open as a movie theater, have it be a bit quirky, she'll be movies, sci-fi, a lot of horror movies, that kind of thing. Mostly older, pre, probably pre-90s kind of thing, all the way back to silent films. So we opened up. Um, things were okay, okay at first, um, but we realized it was overwhelming that about, you know, at that point in time, 80% of our requests uh, were to rent the theater, essentially, for birthday parties or for gatherings and that kind of thing. So that changed the model really quickly for us, um, being that, like, give the public what it wants kind of thing. Um, Nicole can talk about um, the programming more specifically because she chooses what we show based on different types of feedback and her research and that kind of thing. But showing movies, we typically show either Thursday uh, or Friday or both. Um, Doors open at 7 and movies at 8. And then the rest of the time, it's all rented out kind of as an on-demand situation. Um, Once a year, we do the Rocky Horror Picture Show every year kind of thing, two showings uh, that day typically. And... Yeah, so basically that's the situation as far as our normal hours, which would seem kind of odd. Is like I said, usually Thursday or Friday we show one film, um, kind of thing, and then the rest of the time, because that you know that's what the public wants, we just basically rent the, the theater out for whatever anybody needs. Where do you promote now? How do you how do you get the word out? Yeah, today? so initially what happened was, and this, we got really lucky with this. Um, had we not fallen into that model of the whole renting thing, I don't think we could have sustained. Uh, the model of, um, you know, just showing movies, so to speak. What, what's ended up happening is we've tried to engage outside groups uh, to bring their crowd in. We found Erie to be really, really tightly socially knit. And if one person was connected to five or ten people and they want to go to do something, they stick together, all go do something, that kind of thing. It's not to say that we don't get one person coming in by themselves, but we did notice that with that kind of thing, especially if somebody rents it, they bring their entire family. But like the whole thing with uh, Slaughter Film that we work with, uh, they have a, a good following and they have a podcast and that kind of thing. We have been working with them, I want to say, for more than a year. Um, so we've tried to do outreach to groups, you know, dealt with like the anime group here locally. There's a few other groups that we've dealt with. Nicole can talk to that effect. Sure. But I, I guess what I'm saying is there's two things. Either 
we have relied on word of mouth because of the rentals, which means one kid's ha- one kid has their birthday party and 20 kids show up. Well, all of a sudden, three or four of those or five of those kids want to have their birthday kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of stuff for us has been geared toward word of mouth. We've tried some advertising. We tried like a print thing on like placemats. It didn't really do very well. We tried like a radio related thing, a giveaway related thing. Nothing did even close to as well as either social media or kind of word of mouth. And when I say social media, we did like a really, really low budget um, editing thing with uh, Howie Glover. And he took some footage and we just put it together and we did a uh, say, hey, share this with your friends and get a free two hour rental kind of thing. That went through the roof on Facebook because I think Erie kind of just really likes giveaways and stuff like that. Yes, Um, Erie loves free. Yeah, and so (laughs) that did well. Oddly enough, the the giveaway thing, the two for one or whatever we did on the the radio did not do well, but I think Hmm. the social media thing did really well. So that's what I would say is our, our, our synopsis would be that people are really, really connected i guess i don't i mean some people use the word clicky whatever kind of thing but uh, that's what we found is that when it ends up appealing to an individual that's connected to a group that group kind of tends to gravitate kind of thing you, you guys may have seen the same kind of thing not really sure um with film grain but but yeah that's that's been it for us a lot of paid advertising just really hasn't worked out for us very well yeah i mean i i think for us a lot of it now is um it's just social media it's uh you know the bee. I can say that the beehive here at Edinburgh has really helped us um, as far as Instagram and Twitter um, and places that really, you know, our our board just either doesn't have the skill or the time um, to really work on. So they've been extremely helpful to us. Outside of that, really, it's been Facebook. Yeah, I think, like, the events on Facebook is big because then you yeah. can say if you're going and it shares it to all your friends, like, oh, this person's going to the little biggest yeah. farm yeah. movie. And then everyone's totally. like, oh, that sounds good. So because yeah. I see that stuff pop up all the time, Yeah, you know, and then it makes me go, oh, I'm interested. And then it reminds you about it. Because, like, are you, Meg, are you checking anything out? Like, if you want to do something over the weekend in Erie, where where do you go to find out what's going on? I guess I'll just type in in Google, like, eerie events yeah. these dates or Facebook if I see something pop up. Like, I'll if, – especially if it's, like, an event and it says date and time and are you yeah. interested or going. So you're not uh, seeking a, a newspaper, like a no. physical – or watching TV for commercials or listening no. to the <laughs> FM radio. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting too, Craig, because I guess um, it also depends on what your audience is and in, in the age of – the people that are attending your events in the Erie Movie House, right? If you're, um, you know, doing half off for seniors um, on a on a special day, your outlet for promotion may be different than if you're looking for somebody like Meg um, and the the other young folks that are in the room here with <laughs> us running all our AV. Yeah. <laughs> um, than you would for for the other, right? Yeah, um, you know, we've tried, like, a couple of different Facebook, like, ads and stuff like that, but it always tends to say that our demographic is definitely over 30. There seems to be a, a really weird scoop that's that's going on there. You know, the other thing, too, is, like, because of our, you know, weather and long winters and that kind of thing, sometimes you're in competition with a lot of other events and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of factors involved. I do agree with you on that, too. Yeah, it's a challenge. And Erie's always, you know, I don't know if... Uh... You've, you've traveled more than 
than some of us, but uh, people always tell me that if you can make it in Erie, you can make it anywhere. And Erie is a really <laughs> tough place for, you know, like individual artists or, you know, kind of outsider ideas. If you're not, say, the Erie Philharmonic or the Erie Playhouse or the Warner Theater or the Erie Art Museum, like if you're not one of these, like, standard pillars of eerie society um it takes a while to get eerie to warm up to you do you to to convince eerie that there's some other independent cool offerings in eerie i could not yeah yeah not to interrupt but i I could not agree more and part of it uh when you initially started talking about this subject is we have a lot of uh, touring acts that come through Adam Holquist, who does a lot of uh, music-oriented stuff, and especially yes. like experimental noise, that kind of thing, uh, has been bringing bands through and doing performances and that kind of thing for many years at our place. And so we get people coming through from other countries and from New York City, um, you know, a lot of major cities around the United States, that kind of thing. And we get a lot of compliments um, before we even know where they're from, kind of thing, because we always assume, well, maybe this person's from down the street, and, uh, who knows, kind of thing. We don't care either way, but... A lot of times we get compliments saying, wow, this place is really cool. I love the way that you've kind of designed things. And, you know, it's part of it is kind of like me as a whatever, 13, 14-year-old kid being like, I wish my room looked like this kind of thing. Anyway, so it's very comfortable, very, like, nostalgic, a lot of really cool stuff. Something happened probably a couple of weeks ago, probably like three weeks ago. This uh, individual came in, and he was performing, and he said, man, I really wish I had a place like this where I come from. Uh, I'd be here all the time. I love it. And I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Manhattan. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, we, <laughs> you should be able to get anything you want there any time of day. That's just insane. Um, so we find that largely speaking outside of our, you know, rentals, a huge part of our appreciation um, vocally and, and, and from reviews and stuff like that come from people from other major cities, which I, I can't really explain it. You know, like you said, it does take a while for Erie to warm up to things. Not really sure why, but I'm just grateful for the fact that, like, we get such great compliments from people that are outside of Erie um, kind of thing. It's not like sour grapes or anything for me. It's just, you know, it's a very odd uh, phenomenon, you know, that I think you've probably heard from a lot of people. And the, the, the irony of the entire thing is if we decided to shut down, like, next week, everybody would be upset. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Oh, man. Right. For sure. There's many examples of that in Erie, yes. Uh, we, I don't know. We take a lot of things for granted. I don't want this to turn into just yeah. a bitch session, but <laughs> but no, we do take fine. a lot of Erie yeah. for granted. Don't We don't know what we got until it's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a, it's, a, it's a conscious thing that's going on, but it is unfortunate. But luckily, you know, you have certain repeat patronage and people that love your place, and a lot of people have their dedicated you know, people that love what's going on. I kind of just wish it was a little bit more uh, spread out, that kind of thing. What can we do better, do you think, uh, Craig, as far as reaching people or working together? I'm looking at our Facebook stats while we talk, by the way. Right. Um, That's the one thing is I think because of the point that Erie is where it is, and I think honestly, obviously just my opinion, but this applies to a lot of different things because a lot of people in Erie are of that kind of, uh, you know, my social circle, my comfort group, my uh, you know, situation kind of thing, having the mindset of not 
just like what will the situation do for me or for my group. It's kind of thinking, I, I wish anyway, that people thought on a bigger scale, kind of so to speak. Um, you know, obviously people can do, business owners can do a better job of trying to attend and, and patron each other's, uh, you know, events and, and that kind of thing and working together. But I think it's it's more so a broad uh broader way of thinking that people can be like you know what hey i'm gonna do this for this person just because it's the right thing to do and it's nice and you know this can end up improving a situation for erie in general whereas i think there's a lot of mindsets that are going on that like i'm going to do this because it's going to benefit my group i think we're at that point that we need to start doing some serious thinking about like we're getting to the point that's i don't want to say desperate but you know, we're considerably behind a lot of other cities and that kind of stuff. And I like the endeavors that are going on, but I think certainly these groups like being more inviting and working more intentionally with each other, mm. um, even if they don't necessarily agree with each other, could really, really strengthen Erie's position in a lot of ways, not just, you know, businesses, but like you mentioned, these startups and uh, the tech stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, we're at that point that we should really be digging very deep to engage anyone that we possibly can to get traction. Yeah, that's, that's a good just point. My opinion. But yeah, building. Because I think having that mindset. That's yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say rebuilding a sense of community in uh, perhaps an improved method than what we've known for the past fifty years. I agree because that you know essentially those those are some of the types of behaviors and decision making that could be shooting us in the foot in a certain aspect. You know. Yeah, and maybe that's anyway, like. That's be- because you said you get a lot of out-of-towners at the Erie Movie House. Maybe that's kind of what they sense, is that, like, sense of community when they come there. You know, and, like, maybe that's why you get a lot of people from out of town coming in and really liking it. Definitely. I'm sure that's, yeah, I'm sure it's a very, you know, interesting, quirky, like, unique kind of thing. But I, I do know that the, the perception coming from Erie, coming into Erie from out of town, and it, you know, it was for me when I would come here on vacation, um, is different than, than living here. Not, I'm not saying it sucks to live here. I like it here, but... Um, it's obviously different, and I think that coming in from a different, fresher mindset, seeing Erie from a different uh, point of view, set of eyes, is you know beneficial and good for them. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too much into like I wish we all worked more together and, and better together, but that's pretty much kind of my uh, end point to, to hope for a, a better Erie and community and all that kind of stuff. So, Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for well being here virtually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Good conversation. And we will have links to PDVid for sure in our show notes. Thanks, Craig. All right. Have a good day, guys. I'll see you at the next podcast with Nicole. I'll come and visit. That's been our episode. Remember, you can buy tickets for The Biggest Little Farm at filmsocietynwpa.org or at the door. Doors open Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. We're off next week, returning August 5th with Sharon Dale, chair at Penn State Barron for both arts administration and digital media arts and technology programs. And on August 12th, we've got Nicole Boyvin-Stadler, owner of Erie Movie House, on the show, which we've talked a little bit about today. And make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Green. This podcast is produced by Edinburgh University's Center for Branding and Strategic Communication. It's part of the Northwest Pennsylvania Innovation Beehive Network.